Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes. And that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on Jewish comedy and a history of the American right. Our first speaker is Jeremy Dauber, a professor at Columbia and the author of Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. I love comedy. And I want to know more about what makes Jewish comedy extra special and so funny. Our second speaker is Matthew Continetti, who is the resident fellow in social, cultural, and constitutional studies at AEI. Matthew has a new book that was just released this week entitled The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. I want to learn how the views on the right are not monolithic and how that coalition has disagreed over foreign policy, trade, and immigration. Buckle up. If you missed it, check out last week's program on gentrification and kidnapping rich people. It's wild. Our first speaker was Mitchell Schwartzer, the author of Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. Mitchell discussed why both the wealthy and the poor oppose new building and change in Oakland. The not in my backyard has become the mantra in California, limiting growth and driving up real estate values. Our second speaker was Tom Sankton, the author of The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire. The book's crazy, fast-paced, and fantastic. It's an unbelievable true story about the kidnapping of one of France's leading industrialists. I use interns to help me prepare this podcast, and I'm looking to hire a new batch of interns for the summer. Historically, the interns have been seniors in high school, college students, or recent college grads. Interns will read assigned books to decide whether they're show-worthy, and then will review last week's show to learn how to make it better. Interns will be exposed to all aspects of podcasting. Please let me know if you're interested. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen to Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify to hear them. All right, let's begin with our first speaker, Jeremy Dauber. Jeremy, good luck on your six-minute presentation. A lot of people on this podcast talk about their points, and they make three different points for two minutes each. And what I decided to do in talking about Jewish comedy was do something slightly different, which was to make twice as many points, taking half the amount of time. So six points, because there are really, I think, six kinds of Jewish comedy. The first is Jewish humor comes as a response to persecution. One of the ways of dealing with trauma is to make a joke about it. You can cope with it. You can feel better about it. So that's one kind of Jewish comedy is a response to persecution, trauma, and to anti-Semitism. Another way of thinking about it is Jewish comedy as social and political satire. Jews have had social, political, and religious institutions mock them and make fun of them. A third kind of Jewish humor goes back to this idea that Jews are people of the book. It's a certain kind of Jewish comedy is a witty, bookish kind of humor. It is very intellectual, practiced by the elites who had facility with texts. The fourth kind of Jewish comedy can be of the body. Jews have bodies just like everybody else. They can have a vulgar comedy as well. That is Mel Brooks, and the other kind might be the comedy of Woody Allen, although his neurasthenic jokes about himself are also very much of the body. So you have those two different kinds, the wit and the bodily humor. Our fifth kind of Jewish comedy is about metaphysics. Jews have flourished and suffered and lived through thousands of years of diaspora, 
due to their self-identification of themselves as a people with a relationship with God, even if it's a God that they don't believe in, don't trust, that they're angry at, all of those kinds of things. Someone like Tevye, the dairyman in Shalom Aleichem stories, who is schlepping through the shtetl and talking with God and arguing with him. You look at the world, at God and Jewish history, and you put that all together. That kind of Jewish comedy is metaphysical and it's pervasive. The sixth kind of Jewish comedy, the Jewish folktale. This is the Jewish people as a people who have their culture, their folklore, their own kinds of stories, and how it applies to us today as it did to ancestors thousands of years ago. Jeremy, is Jewish humor unique? Yes and no. It's unique because it has the details of Jewish history and culture and experience. That's what makes it Jewish humor. But it's not unique in those categories that I just described. It could be applied to other groups of people as well. Jews have an extremely long and quite varied set of experiences to draw on because of their diasporic nature over different continents, over many different historical eras. In your book, you reference biblical stories as a source of Jewish humor. When I think about Jewish comedy, it's secular and not an orthodox one. I've never seen an orthodox Jew in a comedic film or stand-up club. It's exclusively secular. Years ago, I read aloud to my son Chaim Podok's novel, My Name is Escher Lev. And in that book, it's about an orthodox boy who wants to be an artist and that requires him to learn about the non-Jewish world. In the plot, Asher paints a spectacular work of his father on a cross. It stuns his father and upsets him, and it gets uh, Asher tossed from the congregation. Humor often depends on pushing the edge of social norms, and that might be pretty limiting for the orthodox. It really gets to two different phenomena that are linked. The first is the role that comedy plays in religious societies. There's a great deal of humor in traditionally religious Judaism. It can be blasphemous. It can be obscene. In my class, I teach on 17th century Purim play, and they discuss the genitalia of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is rough stuff within a religious context. But it was done within this Purim, this festival framework. Today, there are many kind of religious comedians, and they work within the frameworks of their society, as we all do within ours. Even the contemporary comedy clubs, there are certain things that you can do and can't do. The secular American Jewish experience define themselves in contradistinction to a traditional Orthodox religious experience, and they do that in comedy. One way of doing this is to create a narrative that traditional religion just is not funny, it's very serious, and our narrative of liberation allows us to embrace humor, that they just don't get the joke. But I don't think that it's historically accurate. In preparation for my son's bar mitzvah, a group of kids met with our rabbi to discuss how to prepare the biblical interpretation speech that is given by each bar mitzvah child after his Hebrew reading of the Torah. My son asked the rabbi, is it appropriate to use humor in the speech? And the rabbi said that humor is core to the Jewish experience, and he tries to employ humor in every sermon. It is proper and encouraged to use humor in interpreting the Bible, he said, but be respectful. Let me just say that uh, I applaud your son's impulse to bring humor in, and particularly around the Bible. There's a lot of different humor in the Bible, a lot of different comedies. One way of being respectful, I'm not saying this is the way that your son's rabbi meant it, but one way is to take that humor seriously. You could say that Eddie Murphy or Lenny Bruce took his humor very seriously. Sometimes the humor is a mocking humor of Jewish superiority, saying we've got God on our side. We may find that discomforting. But that's not to say it's not comedy. Well, I think what the rabbi meant 
was that it would be inappropriate to do a fart joke or a vulgar skit like Sarah Silverman or physical comedy like Chevy Chase and Fall Over the Bema. That would have been off limits. Yeah. Now, if he wanted to use witty intellectual humor related to his specific tour portion, now that would have been perfectly fine. Every place has its own sociological rules. Your synagogue has one set of rules, and an Orthodox shtibel will have a different set of rules. Jews are only 2% of the U.S. population, yet they dominate the comedic world. John Stewart, when he got an Emmy for comedic writing, said, For those critics who said, how could you possibly put together a team of comedic writers with only eight out of nine writers being Jewish, and then he lifts up the trophy, we showed them. <laughs> That's great. So why is there such overrepresentation of Jewish comics? Jews were discriminated against, couldn't get into a, a number of professions. Mass entertainment was not prestigious as it is today. This was a possibility of making a living. I just wrote a history of comic books. And one of the reasons that Jews are so omnipresent in the early days of comic books is because it was a crap medium, comic books, so they could get in. Then you have network effects. My cousin needs a job. He's kind of funny. Let's bring him in. For a lot of the 20th century, there is a very rational explanation for why Jews are so overrepresented. And I think it's this combination of social discrimination and network effects. In the Jewish culture, there are just a few fields that your mother will find acceptable as an occupation. There's law, medicine, finance, real estate, accounting and tax, retail, and comedy. So if your grades aren't great and you got trouble waking up in the morning, comedy sounds like a really good opportunity. I think part of the question was, it was legitimate and for whom? Even within Jewishness, we have people saying, I am working 16 hours a day because I want my son to be a doctor or a lawyer. I don't want him to go off and be in show business. And then that status changed. You know, my son, the podcaster, right? Yeah, I don't know. The pay isn't that good. As this became higher status, it became more of an aspirational Jewish practice rather than practical. For a long time, it was either people who were familiarly in show business or, you know, this was the job that they could get as the decades went on and it became more socially acceptable. Let's move on to intellectual comedy and you use Woody Allen as the example. I grant your point that it sounds intellectual, but I think it's more of sham intellectualism. It sounds smart, but it's funny because it's idiotic or it's just simply nonsense. That is a great and incisive observation that you're making about Woody Allen. He was so influenced by Mike Nichols and Elaine May, who had that same kind of clothing. Allen said, I'm not an intellectual. And everyone insisted on taking him as an intellectual. So I think you're absolutely right about that. And that was the beauty of Woody Allen or Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Parody in a certain kind of way that has that kind of faux wit. Woody Allen in his New Yorker pieces, for example, the private detective parody of God is dead and we have to find out who did it kind of thing. Jerry Seinfeld wrote an article about how he writes, edits, and improves his comedy, and that his work is a craft. What do you think of Jewish comedic craftsmanship? That's a really wonderful question about craftsmanship. A technical dedication is something that really can play across a wide spectrum of comedy. It can take as much craft to set up a really good fart joke uh, as it can to do a really polished, witty, elusive one-liner. But in either case, you have this spectrum of attention and care that different comedians put into these things. I really cherish the hard work and awed at the genius off the cuff, out of nowhere, and its incongruity and shockingness can knock you off your feet. There's benefits to both approaches. 
Don Rickles is a perfect example of a comic who can insult with machine gun accuracy. And you're laughing three jokes back. I love Rickles. He has such a connection with his audience. He's famous for it, insult comics, creating this communication where he knows the people which are going to be okay with being insulted. He knows how far to take it. Sometimes you take the joke too far and the comic gets hit in the face. I guess Chris Rock didn't know his audience. <laughs> yeah. The circumstances around the slap, as, as it's become known, I think are not 100% clear to me, but comedy norms change all the time. And one thing that would have been entirely fine 100 years ago, for example, is making fun of people with a medical condition. If this had been an unfortunate hairstyle choice, that would have been one thing, but it was because Jada Pinkett Smith has this alopecia. We now say we shouldn't be making fun of people with medical conditions. Whether that deserves a kind of physically violent response is another question. One of the things that I teach is a Yiddish play from the late 19th century in my comedy class. It makes fun of people with stutters. Isn't that funny? Now, it is actually kind of gross to have that. Some Jewish comics get nose jobs. Others change their names to sound less Jewish. My own great-grandfather changed his name from Palominsky to Bernstein to sound less Jewish. Is that still necessary to hide your Jewishness? Jackie Mason seems to flaunt it. Jew or not a Jew? <laughs> that depends. Uh, again, it's changing times and circumstances. Jackie Mason had a hugely successful career on Broadway for going Jewish. Chicken Soup was getting complaints of being too Jewish. After Seinfeld, there's more depictions of Jews on television. In the Dick Van Dyke show, Carl Reiner was the creator and originally played the Dick Van Dyke character in the pilot, but he was perceived to be too Jewish. George Costanza's name was changed to sound not Jewish, but the character is all in. There is no question that television and media are much more comfortable in 2022 with a much wider depiction of demography, ethnicity, and identity. Seinfeld is now 35 years ago, as hard as that is to believe that it premieres. 1989 is much closer to 1955 than it felt like at the time. Let's talk about Jewish comedy and metaphysics. This is the concept of the relationship of the individual and God. And in the Bible, Jewish characters talk with God seemingly all the time. Abraham has an active conversation with God over killing Isaac. Moses attempts to weasel out of going back to Egypt. Oh God, please send my brother instead. And Job gets angry with God over his mistreatment. But in Fiddler on the Roof, Teva's conversation is one way talking to God with no response, and that allows the use of humor because God gets to play the straight man, sort of like the gag prosecutor in the Woody Allen movie, Bananas. <laughs> the first instance of laughter in Jewish literature is where Sarah laughs, ironically, because she thinks she's not going to have a kid because she's postmenopausal. But God says, that's not funny. You don't understand the way that things work because I'm God and I can do whatever I want. And Sarah then transforms her laughter into a laughter of acknowledgement. It uses irony. Tevia, as you say, does not have the privilege of God responding to him. The conversation that he's having is kind of with himself. He is amusing himself, comforting himself. Maybe he's also kind of explaining the world and providing himself with some solace. It's doing something very serious, helping him make sense of the tragedies that befall him in his life. And he's had a lot of tragedies. There are really parallels between the two where you have this humor in the text, but it's being used for really a deep purpose. And that's why I sort of juxtapose them in certain ways in my writing. 
It's like a modern soliloquy strategy that allows Teva to speak directly to the audience about what's on his mind without being compared to Hamlet. All right, new topic. Another aspect of Jewish comedic craftsmanship where the generic joke provides a structure for embellishment and personalization. And I'm thinking about the aristocrats joke, where you have a structure that allows for creativity by the joke teller. One of the things about the aristocrats, which makes it such a good example, is that it is a scaffolding, which is ethnically, religiously, culturally neutral. And you can put in whatever you want into it. The aristocrats itself is not an inherently Jewish joke, but you can make it into a Jewish joke. And that's very frequently the case with a lot of entertainment genres. A romantic comedy isn't necessarily Jewish, but you can certainly make it Jewish. You can make anything Jewish. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Jewish humor tries to push the edge of what's sociologically tolerated. Mel Brooks in The Producers is poking fun with the musical number Springtime for Hitler, and Seinfeld has an episode where Jerry makes out with a girl during a screening of Schindler's List. Do Jewish comedians excel at testing boundaries? There are definitely some Jewish comedians whose Jewish comedy pushes the edge. There are others who are very comfortable doing some of the nightclub acts at the Copa or something like that. When Larry David came back to write the series finale, of Seinfeld, they get thrown in jail because they are monsters. People didn't like that because they had affection for the characters. But David and of Seinfeld really do push the edge and they show where society isn't quite comfortable. Next topic is Norman Lear. The Jewish archetypal comedy, All in the Family, and the audience's response to Archie. And that's a great question because it gets ultimately to that dynamic between artist and audience. Lear is, is sort of a self-identified liberal, felt that the Bunker character was someone who was not to be admired, not a hero. And the reason for All in the Family's remarkable success was that people identified with Bunker. They thought he was great. I consider Lear to be a great artist, who is like a thief with a hole in his pocket. He leaves more than he carries away. That he couldn't help but make these characters so human that people did identify with them, even if that wasn't Lear's ideological or political intent. How is Andy Kaufman's comedic style different from other Jewish comics? Kaufman is an exception to every rule. We've been talking about comedy as creating a communication with your audience and trying to have a positive response from your audience. Calvin was often interested in bewildering his audience, sometimes even enraging them. He was a genius and was able to make his own space in that way. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Jeremy, what are you optimistic about, specifically about Jewish comedy? We have these new kinds of media for more voice and new jokes than we ever could have before. There's more platforms to hear more funny things that millions and millions of people would have been interested in series about ultra-Orthodox Jews on Netflix. Uh, a couple of years ago, I would have said, I'm not sure of that, but the success of Shtisel, uh, which has its comedic elements, show that there are audiences for Jewish comedy. Thank you so much, Jeremy. All right, let's move on to our second speaker, Matthew Continetti who is a resident fellow at AEI. Matt has this new book out entitled The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matt, please go ahead with your six-minute presentation. Most histories of the American right begin shortly after the Second World War, and they culminate in Ronald Reagan's presidency. But when I wrote my book, The Right, I wanted to provide a wider angle on the history of the American right. When you begin the story much earlier and end it, after Barack Obama, you find that Reagan is not the central character, but one character among many, whose rise was not inevitable. The Republican Party of Donald Trump 
and Ron DeSantis, has a lot in common with the Republican Party of the 1920s, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. The American right prior to the Second World War stood for non-intervention and foreign policy, restriction of immigration into the United States, and a protectionist trade policy. The Republican Party under Donald Trump is against deploying troops overseas and illegal immigration to the United States. Trump called himself tariff man. The theme of my book, The Right, is the ongoing dynamic between conservative elites and the broader grassroots populist revolting against expert wisdom, top-down governments, bureaucracy, and elite guardianship of institutions. Elites and the populace often find a common antagonism toward liberalism in American government, American culture, universities, in the entertainment industry, and in the media. Beginning in the mid-20th century, conservatives found that the way to get into power was the populist grassroots. But that didn't necessarily mean that the conservatives and the populists always saw eye to eye. During the Cold War, anti-communism provided a foundation for an alliance between the conservatives and the populists. After the Cold War, many of the fissures between conservatives and the populist grassroots came to the fore. The issue of immigration, simmering discontent with George W. Bush's policy of regime change in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the integration of China into the global economy. This tension between conservative elites and the Republican populist grassroots grew with time and eventually culminated in the rise of Donald Trump, who was the agent of populist revolt, not only against liberal elites, but also against conservative ones. And that's where we find ourselves today. Conservatives do not all agree on the major political issues of the day. Views evolve as constituencies change and social norms evolve. Each party is desperate to get to 51%. The Democratic Party changed its political position over time as well. Just uh, take immigration. Cesar Chavez opposed immigration because Mexican laborers would undercut wages of his union workers. Well, I would say there's more coherence on the Democratic side on immigration. There was a change in the attitude of unions toward immigration in the last 20 years, when unions saw immigration as a threat to wages of their members. The Republican Party, there is still a debate between the business community, which does favor relaxed immigration policy, and the populist Republicans rooted against immigration. The Republicans are sore that the compromise from Reagan's immigration legislation that traded border enforcement for expanded citizenship wasn't enforced by Democratic presidents. So I suspect that the Republicans would prefer to do nothing. I think that's an accurate statement of the Republican position. The last time there was an amnesty authorized by Congress for illegal immigrants, it was under Ronald Reagan. And Reagan said that the border enforcement and employer enforcement ought to be followed, and they were not, as you mentioned. And that has made many Republicans and opponents of immigration very leery of a deal that would regularize the status of illegal immigrants. I just don't see the possibility of any compromise. I don't see any Republicans even wanting to address the legal status of people residing here unauthorized. The next topic is foreign policy. The Republicans included both isolationists and internationalists in the party leadership over the past hundred years. Senator Lodge opposed the League of Nations, and Trump wanted to bring the troops home. 
and reduce our obligations under the alliances. In contrast, Eisenhower and Bush were true believers in the role of NATO and multilateral institutions to keep the peace. Let's look at the Democrats. In the 1960s, LBJ started the Vietnam War while McGovern protested foreign wars. Both political parties' positions are inconsistent in foreign policy. It is on the issue of foreign policy where you find the greatest diversity of opinion within both parties, and I think that's been true throughout the history. The Cold War established within the Republican Party what one scholar calls engaged nationalism, a foreign policy that's nationalistic, believes in American hard power, and that America shouldn't be tied down by multilateral organizations like the United Nations. America should have troops stationed overseas to meet threats in Europe and East Asia. The engaged nationalists believed in alliances like the NATO alliance, in free trade to empower our allies through economic growth, but also to hold up America as a model of democracy for the world. These were all policies generally agreed upon within the conservative movement during the Cold War period. It's before the Cold War, when you didn't have the threat of the Soviet Union, and after the Cold War, when the Soviet Union is removed from the equation, that figures like Buchanan revert to a disengaged nationalist foreign policy, still nationalistic, still believing in American power, in American freedom of action, but disengaged from the world. No forward defense, no alliances, protectionist in economics, closed immigration. The George W. Bush foreign policy of preemptive war and regime change intensified those differences, made this discussion more vitriolic within the party. On the Democratic side, Bill Clinton seized on that unipolar moment when America was the sole superpower to engage in a variety of humanitarian interventions, believing in multilateralism, international organizations and alliances. There's been a retreat from that position on the Democratic side that is more like the McGovern position you mentioned earlier. One of the reasons I wrote my book, The Right, is to push back against the idea that the right is just one thing. People take the figure of Reagan, they think he's the standard of the American right, that he's the model, everyone should follow him, or they need to deviate from him. My point is, he's one model. There are many different schools of conservatism, and they have often competed for dominance within the right. And we've seen a transition in recent years between engaged nationalists being dominant and the Trump group taking the reins of power. The voter composition of the Republican Party changes over time. Vermont used to be very Republican, and now New England is solidly Democratic. College-educated elites used to be at the center of the Republican Party. Today, non-college-educated whites vote two-to-one Republican and are core to the party. I think we should expect Republican policies to follow the interests of its primary constituents. Yes, I think that's right. There's no doubt that the growth of the non-college-educated vote within the Republican Party has been incredibly consequential for American politics. The migration of non-college-educated voters from Democrats to Republicans is what has fueled populism on the right. My American Enterprise Institute colleague, Michael Barone, published a book before the pandemic on the two parties. And he said the groups of people who compose the two parties have changed over time. But fundamentally, the two parties have always stood for a certain type of American, with the Republican Party representing 
the people who feel as though they are the true American community and the Democratic Party composed of outgroups. Michael Barone spoke at one of my book clubs a couple of years ago about his book, which you reference, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And my takeaway from Barone is that immigrants' national origin and religion matter for current voting patterns. The fact that Wisconsin and Minnesota were settled by Norwegians and Swedes affects their current voting behavior and differs from the German Catholics who settled near Milwaukee, as an example. The real value in what Barone does is look at ethnicity and religiosity rather than looking at the white vote. We can disaggregate it and we can look at, as you said, the descendants of German-Americans. Swedes, and then trace their voting patterns over time. Ethnicity is a much more interesting lens to look at American politics than the reductive frame of race. The other thing he does is look at religiosity. The real change came beginning in the 1970s when it was less what religion you were than how often did you practice it. This idea that church attendance or temple or mosque attendance is the real metric that's going to show where you're going to fall politically is an important transformation in American politics. Your book, The Right, explores the evolving intellectual policy debates in the context of the political environment. My book is unique because it tries to synthesize the ideas with the politics. I try to weave what the intellectuals were doing with the major developments in American politics during this 100-year period. The decomposition of the New Deal coalition over Vietnam and the civil rights movement after the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act is the major story of the 20th century politics. Were they reacting to ideas? Well, it's not as though they were picking up Ludwig von Mises and saying, oh, I'm a Republican now. No. What they were reacting to was the rise of the anti-war movement over Vietnam, the student revolt on campuses, rising crime in the cities, and the squeeze on wages because of inflation. The most receptive audience was the hard hats. That's where you see this dynamic between the conservative intellectuals and populist voters, those construction workers at the World Trade Center who fought the anti-war protesters in the so-called hard hat riot. Nixon loved the hard hats. Whether you call them middle American radicals or you call them the silent majority or you call them the Reagan Democrats, they have provided the votes for Republican majorities over the last 50-some years. What do you make of Tom Frank's argument made in his book, What's Wrong with Kansas, that suggests that the Kansas voter makes a mistake by voting against his personal interests? The thesis is that social conservative voters don't know what's in their economic interests. Voters find values issues more important than economic ones. The political takes preference over the economic if the voters in Kansas vote Republican because they think that the Republican Party is on their side on the right to life or the Second Amendment rights, that makes as much sense to me as it does suburbanites in Northern Virginia. Voting for the Democratic Party is a strong supporter of civil rights and of rights for LGBTQ Americans. Values matters. They matter to both sides and usually take priority over economics. You make the argument in your book that intellectual, but not scholarly magazines like Commentary, The Weekly Standard, The National Review, and American Affairs are critical to the conservative movement. I've subscribed to Commentary magazine since I was in high school, but very few people read it. Why do you think that these intellectual magazines have such outsized influence? 
if politically interested people and politicians do not read them. People don't read the little magazines. They're also not reading the great works that those magazines popularize. They may not have heard of Milton Friedman, Norman Podhoretz, or Irving Kristol, or Leo Strauss, for that matter. But the magazines filter these ideas in ways that make them more accessible to people who are involved in politics. You're right, most people in politics don't read these little magazines. Some people do. I mean, you read it, Larry. Enough politicians read them to draw ideas, and they get a policy proposal out of them. And so it's important that way. The little magazines are directionally the barometer of what the climate of opinion, as Milton Friedman used to call it, is at a given moment. During Trump's presidency, other magazines came into existence to explain and influence the Trump administration. Journals such as American Affairs, the Claremont Review of Books is now central to the Trump world and continues to rise in popularity. Readers of Commentary Magazine and the Weekly Standard would have been shocked by Trump's rise to power and the political issues that pushed him forward in his presidential campaign. Many of Trump's ideas on foreign policy, trade, and immigration were vehemently opposed by the conservative intellectual writers for these magazines. I agree. For someone who had just been reading commentary, the Weekly Standard or National Review, and it's against Trump issue in 2016, the Trump victory would be a surprise. Trump was a master at social media and leveraging the social media power to advance his political prospects. Next topic, conservative talk radio, led by Rush Limbaugh, has more listeners and influence than these political magazines. Yeah, that's right. The important thing about Limbaugh, his audience might not have read those publications, but he did. Rush was very well aware of what was going on on the intellectual scene. Rush Limbaugh is an incredibly important figure in my story. Many people master an industry. Very few people create the industry that they master, and that's what Rush did. Rush Limbaugh created nationally syndicated talk radio and found a huge audience. Tens of millions of people were receptive to it. And he also had unique talents as an entertainer who, as I said, was very conversant with ideas. Rush was taking the articles published in these journals and filtering them, popularizing, spreading them to an even larger audience. One of the great conservative intellectuals of the period is Milton Friedman. He had many policy recommendations. Some got implemented, like eliminating the draft in favor of a volunteer military. Friedman also recommended a negative income tax to reduce the disincentives for work, but it had no support among Democrats at the time. Recently, Andrew Yang is using a similar concept with a universal basic income, but it is now unanimously opposed by the Republicans. I would say that the negative income tax example was influential in the development of the earned income tax credit. Friedman proposed this as a substitute for the welfare state rather than a supplement. And I think Andrew Yang has been perhaps strategically ambiguous in answering the question of whether his proposed UBI would replace the welfare state in its entirety or simply be another add-on. And you're right to say there is no way Republicans would support another welfare entitlement. However, if one could replace our welfare state with a cash grant that would cover all expenses, I think actually a lot of people on the right would be receptive to that. In your book, you discuss the influence of the conservative academic Harry Jaffa. Why is he an important conservative intellectual? 
Harry Jaffa wrote one of the most important books in American political thought. It's called Crisis of the House Divided. And it's a study of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I recommend it to everyone. It is an amazing work. It reestablishes Lincoln as a political philosopher. After that book, he became interested in politics, Harry Jaffa, penned Barry Goldwater's famous line, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, from the 1964 Republican Convention, a line that was among the many reasons that Barry lost that election. He eventually settled on the idea that America was the greatest, that America is the synthesis of classical and modern philosophy and Anything that goes against Lincoln and the founders will lead us down the primrose path to totalitarianism. American exceptionalism is a fundamental idea for conservatives, which is in sharp contrast to Barack Obama, who said that American exceptionalism is as true as Greek exceptionalism. The right has long believed in American exceptionalism. And what made the American unique was the founding. He didn't emerge from tribal warfare and ancestral kings. It was the first time it had been done on this scale in human history, especially these principles proclaimed in the Declaration, the idea that all men are created equal, that the king has no right, was a revolutionary concept that Americans introduced to the world. The American conservative movement said that's something to be defended, the American founding, and the constitutional order, which protects individual liberty, Obama, very interestingly, went against the tradition of American presidents. Ra rah, rah, America, we're exceptional. Obama was the first to say, eh, you know, I believe it in the same way that the Greeks think they're exceptional. It provided a clue to where American politics was headed. Because when you look at American politics today, we're not really arguing over the size and scope of the state. Instead, what we're arguing over is what it means to be an American. Who counts as an American? What is American history? What are the lessons that we're supposed to draw from it? Does American exceptionalism exist? Whose values ought to rule? Conservatives focus on the role of institutions instead of group identity, the importance of the church, business, the military, and thousands of smaller but important institutions like the United Way or the League of Women Voters. Society is centered around the family and not the state. Conservatives fight for these institutions. Changes to them should be incremental because of respect for the way that institutions are managed. There must be a reason institutions work the way they do, because of life's complications and are not obvious. In contrast, the liberal view has attributes from the French Revolution that radical change can solve intractable problems. Damn the institutions. Right. Conservatism is associated with defense of inherited institutions. In American context, what institutions are those? We don't have a king. We don't have an established church. We don't have an aristocracy. We do have the American founding. We do have the American family, civil society, and the market. There's always been a tension between conservatism and populism that is often anti-institutional, that wants its will imposed immediately. In the fall of 2021, in the Virginia governor election, public schools and education was an important political topic. The Republican, Yunkin, argued that content and the curriculum should be determined by parents, while the Democratic candidate said this decision-making should belong with the teacher and education experts. And this debate highlights the differences between the role of parents versus bureaucratic experts. Yunkin is on the side of parents who are disgusted at the way schools handled the pandemic and things taught in schools. He doesn't have Trump's personality. He's not as combative as DeSantis. He's a potential model for Republican leaders. We can do it with a smile and a fleece vest 
and that can go a long way. The biggest surprise in the political world in the election of 2020 was the changing voting patterns of Hispanics as they joined the Republican Party. Hispanic voters care about the same thing as voters everywhere. They want a growing economy, safe streets, good schools. They want affordable health care and child care. And what they saw under Trump was rising paychecks, jobs, and an economy that was recovering pretty quickly after the pandemic shock. There are plenty of people who showed up here legally 30 years ago who claim Hispanic ancestry who are infuriated that people are just walking over the border and they want to deal with illegal immigration. I think the Hispanic voter is in the same position as the hard hats in the 60s and early 1970s because of assimilation into America. They are now more aligned with the Republican Party, mainly because they begin to reject the excesses of liberalism and the left. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Matt, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about our Constitution and the political institutions it created. They've been through a lot of stress in recent years, a profound stress, and they have survived. It's the role of American conservatives to defend them, not to look to a single person, a specific figure or a personality, but to preserve it against its challengers, which can come from both the left and the right. Thanks to Jeremy and Matt for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. The first speaker will be Emerson Brooking, who will discuss his book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. I want to hear about how both Ukraine and Russia use social media to persuade others to support their war efforts in Ukraine. Our second speaker will be Robert Kaplan, author of the bestseller, The Balkan Ghosts, and the recently released Adriatic, a concert of civilizations at the end of the modern age. In case you missed last week's show, check it out. It was on the backlash against gentrification with Mitchell Schwarzer and kidnapping rich executives with Tom Sankton. As a reminder, I'm looking to hire some interns to work with me on this podcast. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.